Hello gamers and makers, welcome to this week's episode of The Games of Life, a podcast where we interview game makers about their game in the hopes of finding the important and meaningful life lessons that are hidden within its rules and mechanics. Though games are fun and entertaining, often being a healthy and constructive pastime promoting laughter and friendship, we believe board games can serve an even deeper purpose by teaching us these crucial life lessons and allowing us to find comfort and personal growth as well. Thank you so much for listening to The Games of Life, now on to the episode. This week I had the pleasure of interviewing Shannon Kelly, the creator of Runica and the Six-Sided Spellbooks, a game of dice, runes, and magic. Shannon, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a bit about you. Hello, I'm Shannon Kelly. I'm a 31-year-old Canadian. I moved to Australia 21 years ago, and uh, I live in Sydney. Um, I'm a game designer and a self-publisher, but during the day I work as a freelance editor. About two years ago, I launched my first Kickstarter campaign, which was for Lucidity Six-Sided Nightmares. That did really well. It fulfilled and hit retail last year. And so I'm currently working on the campaign um, for Runica and the Six-Sided Spellbooks, which is my follow-up game to that one and uh, on Kickstarter right now. That's cool. They, they, you know, this is kind of not so much a sequel, but a follow-up that follows the same kind of structure. Yeah, yeah. Originally, it was meant to have, uh, it was meant to be a way to to use the same dice, and so I wouldn't have to remake all the dice molds. But the more I made the game, the more I realized it would need its own unique dice. So that backfired. But <laughs> <laughs> it looks really cool, and I, yeah, I call it a spiritual successor, probably um, because like it's very different gameplay. I was looking a little bit at the game itself, and the gameplay is very unique, and I'm excited to get to know more about it here through the course of our interview. Great, yeah. I've been told that my designs tend to be a bit weird and a bit different, so yeah, hopefully not too different. That's no weird and different is great. That's exactly where we want to be. Uh, so can you uh, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, your hobbies other than game making? Um, yeah, it's going to be pretty boring standard stuff, I think, for um, for a lot of game designers. But I do love to read books. Fantasy and sci-fi are my favorite. I'm a very big Brandon Sanderson fan. I play Destiny 2 way too much. And I write, uh, write different things. So I've finished writing a novel. It's looking for a publisher right now. And I'm kind of in the middle of writing the the next book which is not a sequel to that one but actually based on the board game that i have up on kickstarter right now wow that's some, that's yeah. amazing <laughs> it's i get to a point where i've listened to and um and played enough games that i feel like i need to just let that battery empty by making something myself so it it comes and goes sometimes i'm very creative sometimes i could not be bothered i definitely know what you mean with that all right so shannon can you tell us how you got started into gaming yeah well my brother and i grew up with a computer in the house we it seems like i'm such an old person to say oh back in our day it was you know <laughs> pcs that took 30 minutes to turn on and that sort of thing but we always had um computer games and game making programs and things like that that we would uh, mess around with um but i didn't get into tabletop gaming until 
probably 15 years ago, maybe even less than that. I had a neighbor who came over and they, they asked to borrow a table for an event that they were hosting. And I asked why, and they said, oh, uh, having a couple of friends around, we, we play, you know, like video games, but it's like Monopoly or Risk, but better. And I went, oh, I like games, can I come along? And from pretty much there on out, I was playing games with them, I joined a D&D group that was associated with them, I started buying my own tabletop games, and now I have four Kallax shelves that I have filled to the brim and they're starting to overflow onto the floor. It's a it's a downward spiral, isn't it? <laughs> mm, I did manage to finally play another game that was on the list of zero plays uh, tonight, so I consider that a win. There you go. There you go. Um, so what was like, what was the big game that you were like, this, I'm hooked. Like, what was, what was the game that they got you? Oh, we used to play a lot of uh, the a lot of trading games, um, like trading card games. Not specifically yeah. Magic: The Gathering. I mean, I was into that in high school, but who wasn't? But I kind of got out of that in uni, uh, uh, and it wasn't until I got with this group that I started playing things like uh, the Lord of the Rings trading card, where we would come back from a movie at nine at night and then we would sit around till 5 a.m the next morning in the freezing cold of winter playing this bloody game um or there was an old marvel versus trading card game which was all about using the the superheroes to to fight and heaps and heaps of fun um very cool and because you had so many cards it was endlessly variable yeah all right uh so can you tell us uh, how you got into game making specifically yeah, um, so uh, like I said, we all, uh, my brother and I always had um, these these two programs, Click and Create, and then its follow up, which was Multimedia Fusion, and they were it was like coding for beginners. You didn't have to learn any coding languages. It gave you this um, this sandbox that you could create art assets and use their simple coding to make it do things and we made these incredibly complex games uh, that were all so hard to win because we were the only people testing them and yeah. so yeah you know you get so good at your own game that you give it to someone else to play and they just go well how am I supposed to do this and you go well Absolutely. obviously you just run towards it at maximum speed wait to the very last second and then jump bounce off the wall and then jump the other way of course what? You why would you do, do anything differently yeah, but you know we were nine years old at the time so we thought that um, they were the best games ever so yeah I, I started making my first serious attempt at a game um probably a couple of years after I got into tabletop gaming um, properly. Um, and that was a game called Tempest, and it's a card game where you're playing one of the ancient gods of myth. Uh, the entire universe has been shattered, but you've managed to save a small portion of it, and now you're trying to take the other gods' small portions. And so it was this mix of mythology and history uh, and I thought it was 
going pretty well, but it got to a point where I just kept banging my head against the wall on it, and I ended up tossing it away. Um, uh -oh. So I've redesigned it a couple of times, but it was one of those games that it just was never good enough that I thought it was worth putting up on Kickstarter. So I'm, I feel I'm sure... Yeah, you know, one day I will finish it. I have a design at the moment that I like that I just haven't actually had a chance to go in and properly test. But who knows? You get to a point on a project and when it's not going, when it's not where it needs to be, that you just have to take a step back and work on something else. So. Yep, yep. And that <laughs> first game that I um, published, Lucidity, I set aside for probably eight six to nine months somewhere oh, yeah. out there because it wasn't working and uh i got a flash of inspiration one day came back to it and it just rolled out and worked perfectly well you know as perfectly as a first draft of a game can work but uh yeah, yeah it was just that time away that gave me the space to to work on it in the back of my brain Exactly, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about Runica and its story, the lore behind it, and uh, kind of the whole narrative? Sure, yeah. So Runica is set in this world of fantasy. It's a middle-grade fiction or young adult fiction-style fantasy book. So the story behind it is that there's this girl called Runica who uh, grew up on the streets. She learned rune magic by herself, and she grew and used that um, to become a professional thief. Problem was, she managed to accidentally pickpocket the wrong target, who happened to be the headmaster of a runecasting academy and a very powerful runecaster. But in trying to escape from him, she proves herself, and so instead of just turning her over to the guards, he offers her a place at the academy and says, if you can make it through a year, then uh, I won't turn you over to the guards when it's over, and I think you might even enjoy it. So the actual gameplay is that each of the players is a student at that academy, and you've all been sent there for one reason or another. Nobody chooses to go to this academy. It, okay. uh, it's new... Um, possibly somebody was sent there because their master just didn't know what to do with them. Um, they didn't want an apprentice, or they gave up on the apprentice because they were too hopeless, or perhaps the master got killed hunting a dragon, and suddenly there's this apprentice here who needs a master, and so they get sent to this academy. So you're kind of a, an apprentice without a home, and so you're trying to find a home here. I do try to bring that out with some of the aesthetic and the art, and um, bringing the, the story behind the game through using the, the graphic design. Um, so each of the characters has on their player card, it looks like a spellbook that they've either scribbled in or spilled coffee on or something like that, just to give them a bit of extra character, things like that. Um, and so it's all about using your board and using the these elemental crystals that exist in this world to create runes um, which create magic spells and as you do that you earn points you impress your professors and the player who comes out on top is the one who graduates i mean you can take a friendlier tone and say that they all graduate and do well but uh one top of the class is certainly top of the class yeah okay thing. yeah all right cool 
Very cool. Yeah, it, it's very unique. The the pieces that you get, the player board. Um, I noticed that. Can can you tell us a little bit about the rotating player board? Yeah, sure. Um, so there's there's a bit of a backstory there as well. Um, but there in the game you have this four by four grid, and so you could think it like Sagrada or. Uh, or any kind of game where you're placing dice down in front of you. But instead of just placing them down like you might in Sagrada, you are pushing them in from one of the four edges of that grid. Which means that if there's a dice in the way, it gets pushed into the next space, and if you push dice too far, it falls off the edge of the grid and you have to put it back in the bag. Okay. So the game is all about trying to push the dice around and manipulate that board in a way that'll let you form these patterns. You can't just place them down. You have to actually solve a puzzle that's in front of you of how you move different things around. Uh, Now, surrounding that is this ring that has uh, a color on each side, and that color matches the dice. So as you're playing the game, sure, you could push maybe blues in from the left-hand side, But if you use certain symbols, then you can then rotate that ring around, which means now you're pushing blues in from the top. So maybe a rune requires you to push blues in from the left and the right-hand side. You'll have to somehow figure out how to get a blue across to the other side of your grid as quickly as possible um, so that you can score that before somebody else does. Very interesting. Wow. Yeah, so I, I kind of... I use the example of um, if you've ever seen Doctor Strange and you see him turning time back or forward, it's got that kind of a feel to it where you're physically putting your hand on your player board and you're rotating it around to create some kind of an effect within the game. That was actually a solution for something that, that I was struggling with with the game, because originally you rotated the entire 4x4 grid, but every time we did that, players' brains nearly exploded, because suddenly the pattern that was in front of you was turned 90 degrees, and everything went wrong. So it wasn't until I played it with another um, fellow game designer, um, Carl Lang, who suggested, well instead of rotating the inside, why don't we just put a big ring around the outside? So we all grabbed scraps of A4 paper and we tore them into circles and then we dropped them down on the outside of it and tested it on the spot. And it sort of worked straight away. Yeah. yeah, That's a very, very cool solution. I'm really impressed with that. It feels different. It makes the game... It gives the game something cool that isn't really in any other game. Like, yes, you can manipulate the dice that are in front of you in a lot of games, but there are very few that create a puzzle every turn that changes that you have to solve. Yeah, that's really interesting. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. 80 translucent dice. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I, I love collecting things. Yeah. Collecting them on my board. And with um, my first game, I tried to play along to that too, where you're collecting and manipulating dice. So because this started out as a bit of a re-theme of the original game, and then it just grew into something completely different, I did start with those 80 dice. So you, you get a bag, they're 12 millimeter dice, so they're your 
standard kind of you know if you buy a big box of uh of 36 um six-sided dice that's the kind of size that you're looking at for these um but you get a big bag of them and every turn you're reaching into them and you're dropping them down so it's kind of like you're you're drafting these things um and collecting them in front of you and i don't know it's it's cool having these little things that look like gemstones um that you're just pushing around on your board yeah super super cool so can you tell me what kind of emotional reaction you want people to feel when playing your game yeah that's it's a really good question as well because i always think that the first thing that or at least the first thing I always do when I'm thinking of a design is think of what kind of emotional reaction I want. Uh, Not so much the emotional reaction, but I imagine a player in my mind doing some kind of motion or some kind of expression. I think, all right, well, that's what I want this game to do. Yeah. Um, So the one that I was going for with this was somebody staring at their player board with uh, their brow furrowed they had their fingers sort of either steepled in front of them or they were resting their mouth on their hands and they were just staring at their board maybe scratching their head trying to figure out the puzzle and then have that quiet moment of satisfaction when they actually solve it and they just look okay. at it and think, yeah yes, I did this. I finally figured it out. <laughs> I, I, I always love that feeling. So, so it sounds like your your goal is to make people feel challenged and then work for the success. Yep, yep. It's that moment when you finally figure out the crossword answer that you've been trying to figure out for the last 10 minutes. That's awesome. I like that. I like that. And obviously, a puzzle game, you know, it's it's meant to be somewhat challenging but yours yours is really unique in the sense that it's not just a puzzle you're also on this adventure trying to graduate and be the top student in the class and hopefully not go to jail for (laughs) um but uh but uh the the fact that like you know the intention is to to purposely create situations that are challenging in a way that can deliver the catharsis of solving that problem um, and designing it for, with that intention in mind is is really, really cool. Yeah, it's. I think from a design standpoint, it's been wonderful. From a publishing standpoint, it's definitely more of a challenge than the last one that I put out um, because I had almost designed the last one to just be the kind of game that you would see at a convention and you would see people playing and just think, ah, I need to try that. Because it was people shouting and cheering and, uh, or holding their hand in front of their face and going, no! And that kind of reaction, which sells really well because it looks so fun to play. Yeah. And this one is really fun to play, but it doesn't look like it. When you're watching someone play, you watch them and you think, oh, no, they look like they're in a world of pain. Oh. <laughs> but See, that would entice you, me. 
Oh, well, that's great then. I'm going to go ahead and get into our most important question here, which is the whole purpose of the Games of Life podcast, where we try to analyze games from the standpoint of them being more than just entertainment and fun, where we can actually learn important lessons about life from these games, from their mechanics and their rules and their styles and everything. So is there a lesson that you think can be learned from Runica that can be applied to life? I think so. I find when a lot of players start playing the game that they say, oh, I'm not very good at puzzles, so I won't you know, I won't do very well at this. But what I've found, not just from demoing the game, but by playing it so many times myself, is that it's amazing what the human brain is able to do and what it's able to adapt to. Mm-hmm. And I've found players on the second game just immediately picking it up and immediately seeing patterns in front of them that they wouldn't have before and it's all it's all just really about practicing and kind of allowing your brain to look at the world in a completely different way um sort of breaking that box that you put yourself in every day yeah um so uh, i mean i if i were to go off philosophical about it then i would say that the game can teach people to look at the world in a different way, to to look beyond what they would normally think possible, both about themselves and other people. Very cool. So it sounds like, from what you're saying, that the lesson is perspective. Yep, definitely. That's, challenge that's challenge really yourself to find to new perspectives. Yeah. And take that into your day-to-day life. I think that that's great. I think that that will definitely be something that you can take away from this game. It, and the idea that with the way you designed it to kind of bring about that catharsis when you solve the problem and just the feeling somebody would have through a challenging game, solving the problem, and then walking away from that game having felt that, how their perspective on their day could change just from accomplishing that sounds amazing. Yeah, look, I I love a game that even if you lose, you still feel like you've achieved something. I agree. I agree. And I think the, this looking at this game from the view of perspective is really something that can be beneficial. Um, can you tell us about a time in your life uh, where the ideal, the life lesson of perspective applies? As far as perspective goes, and it didn't happen too, too long ago, there came a point in my life when I realized that for some arguments on the internet were not worth having that there were some people and in some cases that included myself that were not going to change their minds and that the argument itself wasn't really even an attempt to to change their own mind or challenge themselves but to further reinforce their own perspective um and yeah in some cases that included myself but uh yeah it it was one of those learning moments where i realized you know what i've typed out this two paragraph response but 
what's the point of sending it? There's, it's gonna do no good. So delete, move on with my life, and be okay with that. I completely understand that. That's a it's that's a good good frame of perspective to to learn at some point that um th- I mean the way we interact online is important because it will never go away. And though people are act differently and are seemingly I, I don't think braver is the right word, but people generally act online in ways that they wouldn't do in person. Um but in you know, we all fall victim to that in some way, shape, or form, here or there. But it it is something to always consider the fact that what you say online is never going to go away, and it's important to have the perspective of realizing that and making sure that even online, as you would in in your real life day to day, that you're putting your best foot forward. Yeah, and not just that, but thinking consciously, oh, well, what's, what's the good that's going to be added to the world by me writing this? Like, oh, we'll, yeah, absolutely. I love that. Like, if this is going to convince this person, then maybe it's worthwhile. But if we're just arguing for the sake of it, then don't I have better things to do? I completely agree. All right, well, Shannon, do you have any words of wisdom for our listeners who might want to get into game making? Yeah. Um, so I've already said before to sort of start with how you want your players to feel, um, but could not I agree guess more. My my two bits of advice that I'd have are: don't pay for any art until you are about 95% finished designing your game and you're sure you're going to self-publish it. Uh, that is a very a practical word of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, because not only does it make a game that either a publisher will have to pay you back for the art, which makes it less uh, less attractive for them, but it also locks you into the game so that if you want to change something then you're still stuck with this piece of art that you have to make the game design work around. And sometimes that's good, and that can help. Like, constraints are always good for design, but it can also lock you into too many constraints, I suppose. Um, And I guess the second bit of advice is to just be super open to feedback um, and listen to everything that you hear from everybody but take that with a grain of salt because in the end it's your design Um, and just like you can't make a game for everyone you're the one that has to play this 500 times um, whether it's playtesting or demos or whatever Um, so you better make a game that you like at least um, and that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, I, I definitely definitely agree with you there. Um, so, is there anything uh, other than your Kickstarter that you would like to uh, promote or plug here? Oh, jeez, I didn't think beyond the Kickstarter. That's <laughs> that's kind of my life at the moment. If there are any Australian listeners and your designers, then you should um, look up the Tabletop Game Designers Australia because that's a really good group that is full of tons of people who are interested and willing to help with sort of all stages of game design and self-publishing. That's that's the group that I rep. Wonderful, wonderful. 
Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us so we can learn the lessons that Runica has to teach us. I want to talk about perspective. Everybody has their own sense of perspective, but really amazing things can happen if you choose to change your perspective. You can get a different view of what's in front of you, whether you're doing it literally by sightseeing or whether you're doing it figuratively by analyzing things that are going on in your life. Take a moment this week and try to look at something that's challenging you. See if you can analyze it in a new way. Try to solve the puzzle that this situation is presenting you with. Change your perspective and see if you can turn a potential negative into a positive in your life and that way you can gain that new perspective and the knowledge that that perspective brings. It's always important to look at a situation or a problem or a piece of art or anything from all angles. If you have the ability to on demand change your perspective and be able to learn everything that you can from that situation, there will always be something that you can learn and always new ways for you to grow. Go check out Shannon's project on Kickstarter and get your copy of Runica. That way you can share it with your friends and spread the lesson of perspective. A few end of episode notes. I wanted to apologize to everyone for this episode being uploaded so late. My week got really, really crazy, really, really fast. So I hope you enjoyed the episode and be expecting a bonus episode later this weekend. The Games of Life is produced by Derek McCauley and McCauley Games. A special thanks to this week's game maker and the awesome lessons their game represents. Check out the podcast details for all of their social media links. If you like this podcast and want more, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash McCauley Games, where we publish the full length and mostly unedited interviews from every episode. Follow us on Twitter at McCauley Games and check out our website at macaulaygames.com. Send us a voicemail and tell us a story where the lessons we learned this week applied to your life. Just record an audio file up to two minutes on your phone and email it to thegamesoflife at macaulaygames.com. We will pick one recording each week to feature in every episode. Thank you so much for listening to The Games of Life. A new episode is published every Wednesday, so don't miss it.